everybody. <laughs> so uh, I'm Nick, I'm a solutions architect. Uh, I'm also joined by Etienne and Renan, who's gonna be, uh, he's the product manager for this new service that we're gonna be talking about today. And Renan's gonna be telling us a customer story about cost optimization. So the story for today is, you know, uh, AWS provides lots of choices to you. We have lots and lots of instances, and I think it changes every month, almost literally. Um, and so there's this sort of challenge of, you know, you want to get the best performance, but you also don't want to get paged at night if you don't give it enough resources. So just double or triple it and, you know, someone else's problem. Uh, but then it, that someone else's problem usually becomes, you know, cost and finance. And so the question is, you know, how do you take all these different options that you have and all the different inputs and variables and use that to reduce costs in your environment? So uh, what we're going to talk about today is really, you know, a couple things. One is, let's take a look at the, the total portfolio of EC2 instances and what that looks like. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, some of the things you want to think about. What are the variables and inputs on choosing an instance type? Uh, the sort of ex the exciting part here is we released a service you know, yesterday called AWS Compute Optimizer. So it uses machine learning and CloudWatch metrics to make help you make decisions, understand the risks involved. And then, uh, you know, Renan from NewBank is going to talk about how, you know, as an organization, how they enacted change and did cost optimization and some, some tips and some organizational sort of things there. Uh, and then, you know, we'll follow up and tell you like, all right, so you want to change your instance, you know, what are some of the things you think about? So uh, there's a couple other breakouts that are worth checking out. And these are all going to be on YouTube. And this one will too, so the SlideShare and YouTube, usually within a day or two. They're getting pretty fast about those things. So you can check those out if you like. And from here, uh, I'll take it over to Etienne, who's going to talk more about EC2 instances. Cool. Thank you very much, Nick. So, hey, everybody. My name is Letian Fon. I'm Senior Product Manager at EC2. So first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, the EC2 instance uh, in AWS. So, so when, when AWS uh, was first launched, when EC2 was first launched, we all started with one uh, single instance, which is M1. Now we have over 270, uh, more than 270 instance types on, on EC2. So with this kind of wide selection of EC2 instances, a lot of customers ask us, like, what's the difference between these instances and how, how do I choose them? So now let's do a very quick view of the EC2 instance types that are available in AWS. So, there are five categories of instances that we offer today. Um, the first one is compute-optimized instances, which provide very high CPU power for compute-intensive workloads. For example, things like HPC simulations. We have memory-optimized workloads, uh, instances that support applications that require a lot of memory, for example, uh, in-memory cache. We have uh, storage-optimized instances that are designed for uh, applications that require higher read and write speed to very large data set on local storage. Um, so for example, like D2 and I3 and H1s are an example of these. And then we also have uh, accelerated computing instances, which provides uh, either FPGA or GPUs uh, for workloads that requires a lot of uh, parallel processing powers, for example, uh, machine learning uh, trainings or inferences. So with 270 and counting instance types available uh, in AWS, a lot of customers ask the question, how do I make sure that I'm using Amazon EC2 optimally? So there are a lot of considerations that goes into instance selections. So if, you, so if you think about this problem, the problem is really an optimization problem that is somewhere between art and science, right? So everybody wants to get the biggest bang for the buck, but um, you don't want to over-provision because it can lead to unnecessary costs. You don't want to under-provision because you can get paid at night. So to, to make a good choice, uh, you, you have to have a good guess of what your workload actually needs. So every workload requires a minimum amount of resources, for example, CPU, memory, disk, storage, uh, network. Um, so if you run HPC workloads on T3, uh, for example, then it's probably not going to work very well because it needs a lot of compute and probably should run C5. So you also need to understand what is the cost requirements of your workload. So if I have unlimited budget or money, I, I would like to run all my workloads on X1E or I3, uh, 16X large, just pick the largest instance I can find in EC2. But this is uh, unnecessarily wasteful for most of the workloads that only requires maybe one, two uh, vCPUs or maybe uh, a 10 or 20 gig of memory, right? So um, you have to keep a balance between the performance uh, of the instance and the cost of the instances. 
So there are also other considerations. For example, you need to understand which instance type is available in which availability zone or region. So it's not all the instance types are available in all, all the regions of AZs. Um, so you also need to understand um, some, some of the nuances. For example, uh, certain instance types, for, uh, for example, uh, T3 instances may not be available as, as dedicated tenancy. So if you want to have dedicated tenancy, you probably can't use uh, uh, T3 instances. And then you also need to consider like, uh, if your operating system is compatible with, uh, with the instance, like certain armies has a very strict requirements on what kind of uh, instance it can run on. So it's, when you have initial guess and you start your application, it's not always to, it's not easy to get everything right at the beginning, right? So your initial guess may be undershooting the mark, overshooting the mark. Um, so you need to continuously monitor uh, what your instance is behaving. Um, and make adjustments. So this process is a process we often refer to as right-sizing. So you need to continuously monitor what the workload performance is and analyze the resource utilization and then make changes and then do it again. When your workload profile change or you have more customers, uh, when you promote things from UAT to prod. Um, so whenever you have any change to your workload, you have to do this continuously. So, um, in AWS, we also provide a wide range of purchasing options. Um, so we, we offer uh, things like uh, on-demand instances, which gives you uh, uh, highest uh, flexibility. You can terminate at any time. You can launch at any time. You build by a second. Um, we have uh, spot instances. Uh, if your workload can tolerate inter interruptions, uh, we allow you to uh, get a very deep uh, percentage off from uh, your on-demand pricing. We also offer uh, reserving instances and, and savings plan uh, that you can check in online. Um, so there are a lot of other sessions that talk about the purchase options, so I'm, I'm not going to uh, uh, talk too much about it. Uh, I, I really want to talk about uh, what are the considerations when you look at the instance, uh, to choose the instance from instance capability point of view. So each instance, uh, has a lot of dimensions. The, the first two dimensions I want to talk about are CPU and memory. So if you draw the CPU and memory uh, on a chart like this, you can, you can, you can see that um, for a large range of instances like MCRTX, it's mainly about the trade-off between the CPU and memory ratios, right? If you really want a high memory, uh, then you should really use like, things like X, X1, X1Es or R5s. If you need a lot of compute, um, you, you probably need to focus on like, C4 or C5s. Just focus on the dimensions that matters most to you. And then an, an, another thing uh, I want to mention is that um, in AWS, uh, by default, uh, we offer a lot of uh, monitoring tools like uh, CloudWatch metrics, allow to give, give you visibilities into what instance are currently behaving. Um, there's only one metrics that is not offered by default uh, that is, will be super useful for the right-sizing process, which is memory metrics. Um, so in order to get visibility into your memory metrics, you need, because it's, op it's internal to operating system, you need to install CloudWatch Agent in your instance to get, uh, get visibility into it. So there is a special class of instance uh, in the general purpose instance family, which is called uh, the burstable instance types or T instance types. So burstable instance types provide you a baseline of CPU performance and allows you to burst uh, your CPU usage at any time for as long as you want. So if your average CPU utilization is below the baseline, then uh, you, can, you can run it on a T, which is, uh, which is cheaper than the, the, the other otherwise equivalent M instances. And there are two, mod, uh, two modes for the T instances. One is unlimited mode, uh, one is a standard mode. Unlimited, unlimited mode really allows you to uh, burf, uh, burst uh, above the baseline for as long as you want. If your average CPU utilization end up being higher than the baseline, you pay a, a small extra fee for the extra CPU credits. So it's essentially, uh, it's, it's like every time, every second we top up a certain amount of credits uh, into a bucket. And then whenever you use a CPU, you, you drain the, the, the credits from the bucket. And overall, if you have a surplus uh, in, your, in your bucket, then we won't, won't charge you extra. If you, if, if you have a negative balance in, in the bucket, then we'll charge a little bit extra for the extra CPU credits that, that you used. So T instances starts, uh, T3 starts in unlimited mode by default, um, so that you can, you can, it really gives you very good insurance of, of your workloads uh, in case uh, there's some unexpected uh, spikes. 
Um, so if, if, you, if, you, if you want to make sure that you only pay for the instance itself and you, you, you want, uh, want EC2 to throttle your CPU performance, uh, in case you're, uh, you have a sustained uh, burst, then you can choose the standard mode. So other than the CPU and memory, there are also other dimensions uh, of, of the CPU uh, of, of the EC2 instances. For example, the network bandwidth, the EBS bandwidth. So I'll hand over to Nick to talk about these dimensions in detail. All right. So uh, when you start thinking about your instance, and particularly when it comes to networking, there's a few things you, you want to think about. So each family of instances and each size of those families of instances has particular network characteristics. So each one has uh, a bandwidth capability. It also has things like a packets per second capability. Uh, and so generally speaking, as you go larger inside a family, you're going to get more bandwidth, you get more packets per second. And generally, as you have newer and newer families of instances, they get better at doing networking. So they get better packets per second, they get more bandwidth, those kinds of things. So if you're network bound, often the easiest thing to do is either go to newer instances or bigger instances. Um, and doing the testing, I'll, I'll show you a little bit about how you actually you know, sort of determine that kind of thing. Um, and the instances themselves also have different underlying networking capabilities. So the newer instances have better driver support for things like the Elastic Network Adapter, or ENA. Uh, it also allows you to skip some of the operating system level functionality and push it into the hardware so you get better performance. Uh, and there's also a provisioned EBS bandwidth. So if, if you're accessing your storage into your EBS volumes, you do that over the network, and you want to make sure that that instance has enough bandwidth to do that. So uh, from the EBS perspective, each instance has its own sort of provisioned uh, EBS bandwidth. So you can take a look at that. Uh, you can take a look at your existing CloudWatch metrics and get a, an idea of where that should be and what it might be. Keep in mind that the, the actual IOPS you get out of an EBS volume is related to the overall size of that volume. And if you want more than what's provisioned, you can, you can get provisioned IOPS. So you can get more storage and more IOPS out of that. And so at some point, you, you know, there's this sort of balance between your networking and your storage where, okay, well, am I network bound or is my storage just not fast enough? And so that's usually where you end up doing testing, benchmarking, taking a look at the metrics and figuring out you know, where that line's sort of drawn. Uh, and it, you know, when it comes down to actual network performance, uh, it, you know, it depends a lot. You know, there's a reason why there's not like these numbers out on the internet, because we have to ask a lot of questions to figure out, you know, what is my network performance going to be? Well, there's universal networking stuff, which is an official term, by the way. Um, but it's you know, basically the, the fundamental laws of how things like TCP works. So there's something called like the bandwidth delay product, which basically means that you know, for TCP, I have to send you packets. So if I throw you a packet and you're really far away, you know, and that's, you send me a packet, to say, yeah, I got your, you threw it, I got it, and I throw you another one, like that, that game of catch, if we're really far away from each other, the, the bandwidth is gonna be depending on how big that packet is that I throw to you. You know, if you're in space and it takes a second, then no matter how big that packet is, we're never gonna get high bandwidth. And so what a lot of people sort of, sort of don't realize is like, hey, I seem to get less bandwidth from Virginia to Singapore than I should. Well, okay, or you, are you playing with your TCP settings? Like that's, you know, that's, that bandwidth and that latency is a lot longer and TCP doesn't natively scale up very fast in that scenario. As opposed to like if you use UDP, UDP will just sort of shoot packets off without requiring any response. So you can use UDP to sort of differentiate if TCP might be your, your bandwidth problem. Um, there's also packet loss. So TCP, whenever it loses like even like a single packet will often reduce the entire bandwidth down by half. So any amount of packet loss can kill your, your bandwidth. Uh, there's other things like you know, scaling windows, uh, your implementation details inside the kernel. Uh, there's different TCP implementations like Reno and Las Vegas and things like that uh, that change the way that TCP works. Uh, the MTU, so if I'm throwing packets, how big is that packet? We can do up to 9,000 inside of, of a uh, VPC or peered VPC, um, but over the internet it's gonna be 1,500. So uh, inside your application that also matters. So what? What's the relationship? So every time I make that network call, is it related to a, an expensive storage read or write? You know, um, what's that relationship between CPU, memory, and network? You know, it's something that's pretty hard to, to really determine in detail. Uh, and there's certain optimizations inside your application you can do as well. So there's better driver support. So within the instance, you can enable things like uh, enhanced networking. 
So on the older instances, like C4s, C3s, M4s, they have the option of enhanced networking, which uses the Intel driver, the Intel 82599 driver. Uh, that gives you better networking performance. On newer instances, the, the newer Nitro instances, like uh, C5, M5, it's based on the Nitro platform, which I'll show you, but that requires you to use the ENA driver. Uh, and so that's sort of mandatory at that point. So older instances may not even use enhanced networking. There's other things you can do, like uh, Intel's uh, DPDK kit. So that basically allows you inside your application to skip like the operating system calls and go directly and control the network driver directly from the, the application. So that's for like, you know, really sort of intensive networking applications. And that gets you better packets per second, lower latency, lower jitter, that kind of thing. And that's what we're talking about, like microseconds at that point. And then you've got all the sort of AWS componentry, which, you know, isn't as global. It's specific to how our implementation. So, like I said, your instance has some capacities about it. Um, things like if you're running on the newer Nitro instances, like the C5s, they have a network I.O. credit. So when you first spin it up, you're sort of given like, sort of like the burstable stuff. You're given a credit of bandwidth, and the more you use your, your network, the less those credits go down until eventually you, know, you sort of get to your established baseline. And so that's a different sort of thing you, you want to think about when you're doing testing. Same thing if you're using burstable instances. Uh, if you talk about the, the latencies, so between availability zones is generally like sort of single digit milliseconds, but across regions that can change, and that can change your, deep, your you know, bandwidth delay, delay product, or if you're using CloudFront, those kinds of things. Uh, there's also sort of the architectural stuff. So if you're using Transit Gateway, you know, there's a bandwidth limit of around 50 gigs per attachment. If you're using Network Load Balancer, you start off with five gigs, but it can scale upwards. If you're using that gateway, it's around 10. You know, the VPC itself doesn't have any bandwidth limits, which is good. Neither does the Internet Gateway. Um, some people want to add like additional network interfaces because they think that adds bandwidth. It doesn't. Um, so there's like AWS specific things that you might have to do a little bit of research on. Uh, another one is if you send traffic outside your VPC from a single instance, it's going to be limited to five gigabits per second. So you're not going to ever do like 25 gigs to the internet, um, and you know out of a single instance. But you could do it to S3. You can go from an instance to, to S3 with 25 gigs. So there's just sort of like some AWS limits that may be impacting you. Uh, so the lesson is, you have to go test it. Uh, it's really hard to take all those factors into account for your, you know, especially for your networking componentry. Uh, so to test that, here's some, some tips. So iPerf is pretty good at testing. So uh, you can use iPerf, uh, use, use the dash uh, P, the capital P, and that will do multiple flows. Because a, a single flow is limited to five gigabits per second, but if you do multiple flows, you can hit higher limits. And so, uh, the capital P, you know, I, sometimes I'll try 5, 10, 15, 20, 100, just to see what it does to my, my flow, because that also uses different queues on the networking, it uses different paths inside our infrastructure, so there's lots of ways that different flows help. Uh, you can also use UDP, so that helps you test, like, you know, the packets per second, helps you test the, the raw bandwidth that you can do, um, and gets rid of some of the latency concerns as well, because now you're just shooting packets out, and you're not re requesting for someone to throw you packets back before you send more. Uh, there's this distributed load testing tool. So this is a CloudFormation template you can run. Uh, it deploys basically a, a web console and uh, a container system. So you can do like transaction testing inside your, your you know, inside your VPC. It doesn't have any additional costs. I mean, they're just whatever the cloud, CloudFormation spins up, so you pay for the containers or whatever. But um, it's something we, we've just given to customers. And then, uh, you know, there's a, some pretty good links here in terms of what you can do uh, for testing, some more detail. And then inside the operating system, there's other things you can do. You can do TCP tuning. You can do, um, you know, whether it's Windows or Linux, you can change the TCP optimization, congestion windows, that kind of thing. So if we take a look at the actual hardware that we have, so we're cloud. We have hardware. Huge surprise. Um, and if we go through the, the different generations, so the, the previous generation, this is the CC2. So if we go back in time, uh, pre-Nitro, uh, because we're a cloud, we have to do things like we do billing, we do monitoring, we do DNS, we do storage, we do a bunch of things. Uh, and that all runs in DOM0, which is essentially like the overhead portion of it. And then the Zen hypervisor does the virtualization. And so that, that works, that let people run VMs, um, but it you know, wasn't as performant as it could be. So then with the C3, we started doing some of the, the Nitro work. So we took the, the networking and 
had an 82599 card that you could use with enhanced networking. So now you can skip that virtualized networking and go and directly use the network card. So it gets you better networking performance. Uh, and then in, with the C4, we did more. So we took some of the storage components and we pushed that off. And now the, we have you know, storage optimized with EBS in the C4 instance. So we took that a little bit step further. And then with the C5 instance, for example, uh, we changed the hypervisor out. This is a total rewrite for us, basically. So we're no longer using Zen. We have a Nitro hypervisor. Uh, and all of the componentry that we had in DOM0, we put on hardware. So we bought a company called Annapurna a while back. So we're able to put basically specialized hardware in these hosts so that everything you want to do from a cloud perspective, all of our management, all of that metering, monitoring, DNS, networking, storage, virtualization, that all happens in hardware. So we don't actually need a hypervisor anymore, which is sort of how VMware Cloud works. Um, so we run all of, essentially, the hypervisor and all the cloud functions on hardware, which is great if you really care about performance, because now that's way less overhead that we have to do. The hypervisor is there just for the virtualization, and that's it. Uh, so it's less overhead and more space for computing. So you can get, just moving from like C4 to C5, for example, you tend to get a lot more you know, bang for your buck there, because there's less overhead, uh, especially if you care about like really high performance, HPC, that kind of thing. But it does require you to use now our drivers. So the ENA driver is mandatory. NVMe support is mandatory, because that's part of how that hardware works. So yeah, new hypervisor, less overhead. If we take a look at the numbers, um, so if you take a look at the storage bandwidth, here you can see from, over, from C3, C4, C5, we went from 10 to almost 40 uh, in terms of just raw bandwidth numbers. Um, if you take a look at the latency, so both the average latency and the TP99, which is sort of like the 99th percentile of worst case sort of uh, latency, uh, we've reduced, one, the latency pretty dramatically over these different instances, but we've also re reduced the variability of latency. So the average and the worst case has gotten really, really narrow now uh, as we've you know, offloaded these things into hardware. So here I'm going to pass this over to Letian, who's going to talk about the compute optimizer, which is the cool part. Thanks, Nick. All right, so with so many dimensions and factors to consider, like CPU, memory, uh, disk, like EBS, uh, bandwidth, network bandwidth, all these parameters. So a lot of customers ask us, can you make it easy for me to choose what is the right instance type for my workload? So yesterday we have announced a general availability of a new service, which is called AWS Compute Optimizer, which helps you do exactly that. So looking at the AWS history, we always look for ways to make things easier for you. So a couple of years ago, we launched AWS Trust Advisor uh, to offer two checks, which uh, is high utilization CPU, uh, uh, CPU utilization Amazon EC2 instance check and low utilization Amazon EC2 instance check. So essentially, it helps you identify instances that has a very high CPU utilization that you may be considering purchasing a larger uh, instance for it, or uh, an instance that's pretty much idle and you should consider terminating or downsizing it. Earlier this year, we took a step further and launched AWS Cost Explorer right-sizing recommendations, which helps you to identify underutilized EC2 instances that may, may be downsized within the same instance family, and help you quantify the potential savings, inclusive of reserved instances and a savings plan. So a lot of customers have asked us for recommendations beyond just downsizing with the same instance family, and then uh, AWS Compute Optimizer delivers um, a functionality to help you identify the optimal EC2 instance type for your workloads. So by using uh, the service, you can lower your cost and improve performance of your workloads. You can take advantage of the insights from Amazon's millions of workloads to optimize your workload. You can easily compare and select different uh, optimal instances for your workloads. So it makes downsizing recommendations within the same family or across different families. It makes upsizing recommendations to remove performance bottlenecks and recommendations for EC2 instances that are part of auto-scaling groups. So it provides additional capabilities to enhance the recommendation quality and user experience uh, for the infrastructure operators. Uh, it provides you a performance risk score uh, to help you understand what is the, the, the trade-off between cost and performance. It also provides features, uh, things like uh, projected utilization time series, because a lot of times when you talk to an engineer, can you downsize this instance, they will, they will, they will ask a ton of questions like, is it going to restrict my uh, CPU? Is it going to have sufficient performance for my workloads? So uh, AWS Compute Optimizer helps you answer this question as well. 
So at a high level, a service ingests uh, the configuration data uh, of your AWS resources. So things like uh, the tenancy, whether it's part of auto scaling groups, and all sorts of information. And then it also looks at the CloudWatch metrics. Um, so if you have uh, CloudWatch agent installed and you use the default uh, namespace, the CW agent namespace, we'll consider memory metrics into consideration as well. It then analyzes all these data and then uh, to provide you up to three recommendations and it project the CPU and memory utilization uh, of, your, of your workload on various instance types and then choose the best one for you. So now let's do a quick demo of the service. So um, when you first go to, uh, when you first start using AWS Compute Optimizer, Miser, uh, the service is an opt-in service. So uh, you will need to explicitly opt-in for your uh, accounts. Uh, so you can opt-in uh, uh, just for your current account only, or you can opt-in for all the accounts in your organization. Um, so this is uh, the, the opt-in page. And then one, once, once you review all these information, you can click opt-in. Um, so I have, I have uh, once you click opt-in, then it will take uh, about 12 hours to generate all the recommendations uh, for your account. So uh, this is an account that have not opt-in. So I'm, I have a prepared account that uh, has uh, recommendations for it. So this is a dashboard uh, you will see after 12 hours. So you will see um, all the EC2 instances that, you have that we have recommendations for, and you, have, you can see the auto-scaling groups uh, that we have recommendations for. The console is a global console, which means that you can select multiple regions. Um, and then you can you can you can select uh, all the uh, you can select accounts in your uh, organization if you have an organization account. So it, it simplifies uh, the workload for uh, infrastructure managers because you don't have to uh, toggle and switch uh, log log in log out different accounts. So here there are two parts. Um, so one is EC2 instance parts, and we classify these two instances into three categories. One is under-provisioned, one is over-provisioned, uh, and one is optimized. So let's look at the instances that are, that may be over-provisioned. So when, once you click on that, it gives you a list of all the instances that, that are over-provisioned. Um, so it shows you what is the current instance type. For example, this one is running an M5 uh, XLarge. Um, Computer optimizer thinks that it's over-provisioned and you can run it on R5 large. The current on-demand price is 19.2 cents and you can run it on R5 with 12.6 cents per hour as on-demand and you can save uh, this amount. Then you can configure uh, the columns to, to not only show the on-demand prices, you can, you can show the reserve instance, uh, one-year RI price and three-year RI price. You can exclude instances that belong to the auto-scaling group because they would need some special treatment. Um, you can also uh, look at the, the RI coverage and RI utilization so that you, you can analyze whether you will need to convert RI after you make the change. So now let's look at an example. So this is the detail screen that shows you for this particular instance um, what are the recommended options. So it's currently using the M5 2x large. Um, the average CPU utilization, if you look at the chart, is around 10 to 15 uh, percent. Over the last two weeks, you can, can look for things that has uh, a shorter period. If you look, look at the last three days, you can see it's bouncing around between 10 to 15 percent. Um, so it, you can actually run it on R5 X-Large with half of the vCPU. So at the moment, you have eight vCPUs. You can, you can downsize to an instance with four vCPUs. Um, so here, there are two lines here. The, the blue line shows the current uh, utilization for the past two weeks, and the green line shows, had you used R5, what would the CPU utilization look like? And it helps answer the question like, am I going to be throttled by CPU? In this case, probably not, because uh, the projected utilization is below 25%, so you're pretty safe uh, to choose an R5. Uh, if you have memory metrics available here, uh, it, will be uh, it will be displayed here as well, and we take that into account into analysis. Um, but uh, this, this instance does not have a CloudWatch agent installed, so it shows data unavailable. Uh, 
And then you can click this button to go to the EC2 console, which um, you, can, you can stop, modify, and start uh, instances in the EC2 console. Now let's look at the auto-scaling groups. So for auto-scaling groups, we have two findings. One is not optimized, another one is optimized. Um, so not optimized means that there is a better instance type uh, for your auto-scaling group. So for, exa for example, this one you're currently using the C5X large, uh, that is 17 cents per hour, and you, your group size is four, so the design number of instances is four. Um, so you can run it on T3, or M5 or R5, all of them will save you a significant amount of money. If you choose to T3, it will, it will save you about 51%. Um, and we, if, we, if we look at this average CPUization of the group, this is the group level metrics, it's pretty low, so it's, it's pretty safe to, um, to downsize this. So in terms of the metrics that we analyze, uh, we analyze uh, a wide range of uh, uh, CloudWatch metrics. Um, so if memory metrics is available, uh, so you can, you can use uh, the, the default CloudWatch uh, agent configuration and publish to CW agent namespace, we'll pick that up. Uh, if you're not using CW agent, uh, CloudWatch agent, then you can also publish me uh, metrics by publishing to the same dimensions, using the same dimension namespace, and then we'll pick, pick it up as well. Here we, we also have uh, a field called performance risk, which helps you understand like, when you change from C5 to T3s, uh, what would be kind of the uh, overall risk assessment. So here we have uh, risk, performance risk as median for T3, uh, very low for M5 and R5. This reflects that T3 is, uh, there's some performance variability that you will need to test uh, for your applications. So that is, um, how, how the console works. And then uh, all these recommendations are available uh, through APIs. Um, so you can, you can just use open AWS CLI and just give you an example. AWS Compute Optimizer get EC2 instance recommendations, which gives you all the recommendations for EC2 instances. And then it shows you JSON, which essentially uh, has the instance ARNs, um, the, the recommended instance types. Um, this is the current instance types uh, and And these are uh, the things above are the recommended one, R5X large. And then you can, you can essentially export all the recommendations through JSON file. You can do whatever you want. You can put in a CSV or you can uh, import in, uh, you can write some script to inter, uh, import into CloudFormation templates. Um, so uh, there's uh, endless uh, possibilities uh, once you have the API experience. So now let's, Let's go back to the, to, the, uh, to the presentation. So with AWS Compute Optimizer, so right-sizing is not something that um, you click a button and, and, and it's something that's optimized for you, right? So you have various tools, you have AWS Compute Optimizer, you have Cost Explorer, you have Trust Advisor. So all these uh, AWS services help to identify what is the optimal and easy to instance for your workload. But in order to realize the savings, you, you still have one step, which is you actually have to have people to implement all these changes uh, and validate the performance of uh, the, the performance characteristics uh, of your workload and make sure that everything will work fine after you make the change. So let me in uh, introduce Renan, who is the director of engineering at Newbank, uh, and he has some ex excellent story about how Newbank approaches uh, the whole right sizing process. Welcome, Thank Renan. You. Hello, hello. Hey, are you okay listening to me? Okay, good. So, um, as Lechen uh, mentioned, I'm, my name is Renan Kapavegi, and I'm Director of Engineering at Nubank. Uh, any of you know Nubank already? Uh, okay, just a few hands. Awesome. So, uh, for those that don't know it, uh, Nubank is the leading uh, financial technology company in Latin America, and we're also uh, the largest independent now bank in the world. Uh, you probably don't know it because uh, we're not as known here in the U.S., and I'm going to explain a little bit of our business because this is important uh, for you uh, to get some insights on your right sizing and cost optimization strategies, some of our architecture as well. Uh, and I hope to share some lessons that we've learned that could be useful that you can implement right away with, uh, in your company as well. So uh, just to uh, explain a little bit, uh, our products have changed the life of 17 million people in Brazil. We provide a fully digital experience through the mobile app by uh, 
uh, enabling people to take control of their financial life. So everything from managing purchases, invoices, everything being done in real time with a no-fee approach. And in Brazil, around 60 million people are unbanked. And this means that uh, for the incumbent banks in Brazil, uh, they are just not profitable because of their physical branches and inefficiency. But with Nubank, you just need a smartphone and an internet connection to be part of the formal economy. So that's huge in terms of democratizing uh, financial services. And all this uh, technology approach uh, with no fee approach comes together with a humanized uh, service through the chat, email, and app. Um, and well, the main reason I'm putting this uh, slide here is that we've seen exponential growth. We are not a very old company. We are five, uh, six years old. And um, scaling is hard. You probably know that. Uh, and this um, thing that we did by uh, growing exponentially, we did it with maintaining one of the highest NPS in the industry. And the bank credit card uh, offering was started like five years ago. And it's not that old, but our scale is already massive. And with massive scale, you have massive uh, cost optimization opportunities as well. And this curve here shows the number of customers in yellow and the normalized cost um, in, in blue. And this AWS cost curve was growing too steep. And I, I think probably some of you have some similar stories. That's why you're here in this session. But this caught the attention of our finance team, and they wanted to understand uh, why are these costs increasing so much? Who are the main offenders? Uh, can I see this cost by customer? Can I see this cost uh, by product, by team, business unit? You know, They wanted to understand uh, how much um, can we save in terms of money? Uh, what can we do about it? And uh, can we see the forecast for next month, next year, next five years? You know. And our journey developing this cloud cost optimization management uh, has had a lot of different moments. And I'm not going into many details here, uh, but we've come a long way from almost zero visibility and uh, lack of reserved instance coverage to a fairly complex cloud man cost management process with some good results and a semi-automatic right-sizing process workflow that I'm going to go deeper uh, in a few minutes. But during this journey, we migrated our infrastructure to a cell-based architecture uh, for scaling purposes. You've seen the scaling uh, part. Um, and the cell-based architecture uh, is important in this because um, it was good for scalability, but it was not as good for efficiency. And in the cell-based architecture, we basically duplicate or create multiple clones of our infrastructure that handle different types of customers or different groups of customers. So the infrastructure is basically the same, but uh, in terms of load and performance, they differ. Uh, we also perceive a big knowledge gap from the finance team when it comes to AWS cost mechanics and um, pricing model. Uh, it's not something that's easy to grasp. But we eventually hired a full-time employee to manage our cloud expenses. It was something that was really good for us. And we also migrated to Kubernetes. Many of you have done that or are planning to do that. So I'm sharing some stories on how uh, it, that go, went for us. So it was good in terms of velocity, scalability, reliability. But for cost allocation and attribution, it brought some meaningful pain points. And uh, I'm going to tell a little bit about that. So we had to develop our intuition as a company uh, to actually ensure that uh, we could evaluate the initiatives that we're uh, going ahead with. So for the business side, we, de we decided on some business metrics. And for our context, it was very important to know the cost per customer, the cost per customer per business unit. Uh, we wanted to see the actual cost versus the forecasted for, uh, cost um, because we're a Brazilian company and the taxes are huge and you have the exchange rate when it comes to dollars, so we need to, to keep good track of that. Um, and we also want to track the number of future opportunities, their size and their impact. Uh, we want to know if we're prioritizing correctly and staffing correctly because there might be some initiatives that it's better to put 10 people working on than others. And in terms of cloud metrics, that's more on the tactical side. We want to understand how were our efforts were going. So we're measuring uh, reserved instance coverage, the percentage of untagged resources, with which we wanted it to be zero, right? We wanted to give uh, costs the owners. 
we want to see the number of microservices that are within our right-sizing recommendations. That's very important. And of course, uh, the number of idle resources, which is basically waste that we could delete and we're not deleting. We also want that to be zero. And if you take a look at our main metric uh, in terms of business, which is the cost per customer, um, this is normalized using uh, August 2017 as the index. Um, well, during this period, uh, we expanded customer base, improved the product offering, feature availability, and we did it keeping this fairly stable cost, let's say. Uh, so we went from 100 microservices to 350, and from two shards or two cells to 15. So we grew a lot, but the cost uh, for a customer didn't grow that much. Um, and if we were not on top of our cost, it would be really impossible for us to keep this, uh, is, this is stable, right? That would go bananas. So you can see on the far right uh, of the screen that there is a big uh, change in the slope of the curve. And this is after we implemented this semi-automatic right-sizing process and this Kubernetes improvements. And we actually don't expect it to go to zero, of course, but expect to reach a new baseline, then find the future opportunities and get a new baseline afterwards. So uh, how can you, here in this session, drive changes uh, and results to your company? Um, so the playbook, basically, that, that we try to follow is that we have to migrate workloads that are on demand to different purchases model, like a spot instance, reserved instance. That's one way to do it. Second thing is eliminate waste. We should not be paying for things that we're not using. And third, we should right-size your workloads. Uh, and that's the playbook, that's a theory. But when we go actually from visibility to actionability and from theory to practice, uh, in the companies we are in, we actually have to focus a lot on stakeholder management. We have to rely on automation. We have to develop our automation. So you can uh, automatically uh, allocate the costs all the time. You have to uh, do sometimes a cultural shift because you're not going to do all these changes in the company by yourself, by your team. You have to execute changes through the others. And all of that is kind of wrapped in this continuous improvement loop and you will get better and better. And going deeper in the right-sizing concept and challenges, right-sizing is basically the process of getting the best resource fit for an application or infrastructure. And with the cloud, we pay based on what we provision and not on what we use from what we provision most of the time. So if we could use and provision exactly what we need, then we would get the best value for money that we can. And this is not easy because many times we over-provision for redundancy, reliability, we provision for peak capacity instead of scaling with demand. And many times there is an engineer that puts this 5x factor just to be safe. And you know, it happens, it's real life. And what we want to do is we want to empower engineers, we give, want to give them visibility, put, be right there in the right uh, feedback loop and ensure the incentives across the company are aligned. And we need to make them understand why right-sizing matters. So there's a big effort on education. And these small things with a thousand teams, a hundred teams, tens of teams, they sum up to big amounts. They are small, but they sum up to big amounts. So we should not be trying to honor backlog, but we should try to make the tooling better, the automation better, and put this big effort on cultural shift. So our first approach to right-sizing uh, was very, very manual. And it's okay to do that, especially in the first step. It's basically the first step that every company should begin with. And in this process, we had this full-time employee, an AWS cost analyst that would go to AWS reports and treat and clean the data, uh, check the right-sizing opportunities, create dashboards, analyze the data, and then schedule presentations with the feature teams, with the product teams. And from the engineering point of view, these uh, engineers would attend to the presentation uh, after uh, a while, they would put the recommendations on execution plan in their backlog, and eventually, perhaps one day, you know, they would do it or not, I don't know, because it's their backlog. And how do you follow up on that? And um, this uh, manual approach was good for a while, but it has some, uh, some issues, right? And I think one of the greatest things that AWS is doing is with the launch of AWS Compute Optimizer is that this manual step of uh, treating the data, analyzing it, they're doing it for us, so 
it's easier to get started. You, this first step of uh, analysis uh, is easily done, so try that out. But thinking of ways we could improve that process, um, well, we want it to be more easily scalable, more automated, and easier to execute and implement. And we thought that if we did all of that and inserted uh, the right feedback loops into the developer workflow, we would reduce the lead time, which was really high, and the effectiveness of the changes we wanted to perform. So ensure that the things are actually being executed. Um, and I'm happy to share with you that by changing uh, the process or using this new process that we developed, we reduced the lead time from 60 days to an average of five days. So huge amount of uh, results for us. So to explain a little bit of how that works, we have this central repository uh, that we use where we declare our microservices and their workloads, right? But there's this other thing that we have here, which is um, the applications running or the runtime. And there's this monitoring tool that we use called Prometheus, which is an open source tool that uh, monitors uh, Kubernetes workloads, basically, and many other things. So what we did is that um, we put those things together. We actually had uh, a script that would check for the service or for the application what they were being provisioned with and what they were actually using. And this script that we created was able to do that with not a lot of fancy logic, just some uh, smart, uh, quick things. And there's a lot of room for improvement there. But what we did that's really powerful is that uh, it automatically uh, opens a pull request in the central repository already implementing the suggestion for the right sizing recommendation. And that's really cool because what we actually did afterwards was that we put this script as part of our CI tooling, so embedded into the developer workflow. So if a developer is changing their applications uh, and in terms of microservice workload or configuration or anything like that, this test is running if you were over provisioning, the test fails. So this is like the feedback, the, sorry, hey, the feedback loop just on the spot and then the engineer would change that and there's this command that actually executed change for them. So this led to 40% of our microservices being right-sized in the first three months. And this is very cool because we have 350 microservices. So if we did that by ourselves or with an analyst, that would be really painful. And talking about the cell-based architecture that we have, uh, one thing that's important to understand is that for tens of different cells, what the engineer would do is to provision the capacity for the workload based on the highest resource need and not fine-grained detail that. So what would happen is that the highest need would dominate all the others, and then for the other cells, it would be uh, over-provisioned. And well, we can see that in this uh, uh, screenshot here, this is the right sizing of our uh, uh, script. And there, in the current workload, you can see that uh, for the main shard, we were using, uh, compared to the other ones, eight times more uh, memory, uh, Sorry, it's times more memory in twice as much CPU than we actually needed. And for a human, it's really hard uh, to go into these fine-grained details and complexity. And prior to that, only humans would change, be changing this file. But now that machines are doing it, it's more inexpensive because machines are really good at dealing with complexity and fine-grained details of repetitive tasks like unit testing, linters, you know? And um, humans are not. They lose focus. They tend to avoid the effort, even when the rewards are potentially huge. So there's a step that's the first one, which is based on a manual work. But eventually, you have to automate. Automation is the future. And another problem that we had, um, it was related to frustration, right? So uh, the cost optimization journey is not linear. And remember that bumpy, that best cost per customer that I showed you? Well, to improve infrastructure, we actually have to create infrastructure to test it. And when you're doing that, you actually have twice as much infrastructure. And twice as much infrastructure, it costs. So uh, they, uh, the, way, the main reason I'm putting here is because when we were migrating uh, to Kubernetes, 
we had the old infrastructure and the new infrastructure. And that was a time where we had to test it and ensure that the reliability was there, all the controls were there. And eventually, we killed the old infrastructure. And we had a new infrastructure, which was good. It was reliable. It was scalable. But it was not as efficient as the old one because we've been running the old one for some time. And we have already optimized that. So now we have a new baseline with the new infrastructure. And then we have to optimize it again. And another aspect that Kubernetes provides us is the flexibility. So um, we were using, uh, at first, uh, after the migration, uh, the same EC2 uh, workload requirements for the container because uh, it was easier for us to do that in that way. But in the EC2 world, we had the log forwarders, we have the monitoring tools, all the sidecars, we had the operational system. And this uh, was not being used by the pods in Kubernetes. So this space that was actually provisioned, it was not occupied. So eventually, we were able to uh, make our workloads uh, for the actual applications smaller because we were sharing those log forwarders within a Kubernetes nodes. And thinking of flexibility, another thing that flex, uh, Kubernetes brings us is an aspect of having an application that's half a CPU and 20 gigabytes of memory or something like that, which is more flexible than using the uh, previous uh, created types of workloads that EC2 instance has. So uh, this flexibility might be important to you. And to do a quick recap here on a lot of things that I've mentioned, first you have to define your metrics and your goals for your own context. It could be cost per view, cost per impression, cost per customer. You know your business better than me. But find a common um, main, uh, main driver for your cost. It's going to be an estimate, it's not going to be accurate, but find it. Second, cost management might require a cultural shift because you won't win this battle alone. You have to educate your finance team, you have to uh, empower the engineers of your company, and you have to have some empathy because some people are not going to prioritize your cost reductions. And it's okay because they might be adding more value to the company by uh, creating more revenue than by reducing costs. Be mindful of that. Third, start manually, then think of automating things. Try out AWS Compute Optimizer. It might be really helpful to you. Fourth, this cost optimization journey is not linear. So it's good to understand that so you don't get frustrated. Okay? And finally, I think the most important message here is that right-sizing is a process. It's not a project. When you finish, do it again, then do it again, then do it again you get better and better with each iteration. Costs are like fingernails. You have to cut them continuously, okay? So thanks and back to Nick. All right. Cool, thanks, Renan. Um, so, so let's say we've gone through this whole process and we wanna change our instances out. What do we need to think about, right? So uh, we talked about a little bit about sort of the nitro changes and the hardware changes. Uh, the big one is, you know, hey, when I go to C5, M5, R5, one of the newer instances in the roughly the last year or so, um, they do have a different hypervisor storage and networking components. So um, there's, some there's some sort of CLI checks you can do here to see if your operating systems and things are compatible with the, the new versions. If you're on most of the, the common distributions of the, you know, the Red Hats, Ubuntu's, Amazon Linuxes of the world, uh, it's been built into those kernels for a year, year and a half-ish for the most part. So uh, you also have to change a little bit of the EBS uh, volumes here. So I got a command where you can go check that. And then in terms of the ENA driver, uh, these are some things you want to think about. So it's, it's pretty cool, actually, if you're a networking geek like me. Um, we've changed a bunch of things in, in the underlying hardware that make the networking better. Uh, lower latency, lower jitter. Uh, here I've got some of the operating systems and where we introduce support for ENA. It's also out here on GitHub, so if you run some sort of you know, bespoke operating system, you can patch those kernel changes in. And uh, there's actually a, a V2 of this, which does some other cool things. So if you're gonna be patching, try to get that in there as well. So uh, thank you everyone, and appreciate you coming. And uh, we'll be up here for questions if you have any, if you wanna come up and ask any questions.